This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. The food supply in the U.S. is constantly evolving. U.S. consumers want convenience, choice, and diversity in the foods they eat. The U.S. is importing more food than ever before in order to meet these demands. Food production has become more globalized, and the route it takes from farm to table is more complex. Much of our food now takes a longer, more complicated path from the farm to our table. And yet most Americans purchase food for their family's dinner table with a high level of assurance that the food is safe. Much of the effort for securing the U.S. food supply rests on the work of the Food Safety and Inspection Service within the U.S. Department of Agriculture. FSIS is the public health regulatory agency responsible for the safety of the U.S. meat, poultry, and processed egg product supply. For over a century, the agency has worked to ensure that America's food is safe from contamination. The vital services of the FSIS have and continue to touch the lives of almost every citizen every day in America. FSIS is accountable for protecting food for over 300 million Americans and millions more around the world. What are the strategic priorities of the USDA's Food and Inspection Service? How is FSIS ensuring the country's food is safe and uncontaminated? And how is FSIS leveraging technology and innovation to meet its mission? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Alfred Almanza, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Al, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Also joining us from IBM is Lisa Yarborough. Lisa, welcome. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here. So, Al, before we delve into specific initiatives, perhaps you could give us an overview of the history and mission of USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service. Okay. Well, FSIS is a public health agency at USDA, or United States Department of Agriculture, uh, that's responsible for ensuring uh, that the nation's commercial supply of meat, poultry, processed eggs, and now catfish, uh, whether domestic or imported, is safe, wholesome, uh, and correctly labeled. So... When you think of that mission, how is your agency organized? What's the scale and size of its operation, your portfolio? And maybe give us a sense of the uh, geographical footprint and size of your budget. Right. So we have about uh, 9,000 employees, more or less about 1,000 in in headquarters here in D.C. and the surrounding area. We have 10 district offices across the country in Alameda, California, Chicago, Dallas, Denver, uh, Des Moines, Jackson, Mississippi, Philadelphia, Raleigh, and Springdale, Arkansas. Those are our field operations district offices. And uh, we also have uh, inspection personnel in all the establishments uh, that either slaughter or process 
any of the products that we regulate, which, again, would be uh, meat, poultry, or processed eggs. Al, would you tell us more about your specific role as Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety? What are your specific responsibilities and duties, and how does your effort support USDA's overall mission? As uh, Deputy Undersecretary and Acting Administrator, I'm responsible for making sure that the agency functions uh, effectively and that it implements the, the best new food safety inspection approaches uh, that, are, that are in the market. Um, in the Deputy Undersecretary role, I'm responsible for ensuring that USDA is effectively carrying out its food safety mission, uh, which plays right into what USDA as a whole does. Um, and looking at looking out for ag uh, and, and inspection type activities uh, within our scope and our mission. So, Al, um, regarding your duties and responsibilities as the leader of the food safety effort for ag, um, what are your say three top management challenges, and how have you sought to address those challenges? That's a good question. Uh, modernization uh, is is one of the key key things that that I'm dealing with um, inspection. Uh, like moving inspection to a more automated uh, type science-based uh, approach. That's one of the key things uh, when, I, when I first came in, uh, we were all paper, obviously, 38 years ago. Or as people in the agency say, you've almost been there 40 years. I'm like, eh, don't use 40 years quite yet. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, that transition and trying to, to have uh, tools for our inspection work a workforce to be able to capitalize on the data that they're catching or capturing every single day, um, communicating effectively to the field. That's another, uh, what I would say, challenge because we do have um, approximately 3,000 employees that work in slaughter plants that do slaughter inspection every day um, that we can't communicate with um, what I would say electronically. They don't have access to to our computers and things of that nature. Uh, now we're trying to uh, mediate that and trying to find ways to, to do that. But, but still, we have a new um, a program called iImpact, uh, which is going out to all our field employees. In fact, I was just at a training seminar earlier this week in Dallas, Texas, where they are training the trainers to go out and reach out to every single employee that works on the slaughter line to show them how they fit into the agency's mission. I hate to take credit for it, but it was something that I felt that was necessary to to show uh, basically our inspection workforce how they fit into our strategic plan and how what they're doing is very, very important uh, to not only the American public but to the world because our food supply is so global uh, that it's not just the United States anymore. Uh, the third thing is improving efficiency. I would say uh, PHIS, our public health information system, which again is the electronic method for us capturing data of every single task that our employees capture every single day as they're performing tasks in these uh, establishments. Al, along with the challenges you've encountered, leading such a critical mission support portfolio can also be fraught with unanticipated or unexpected surprises. To that end, what has surprised you most since taking on your current role? As I was saying, uh, the the shift from paper to data, data is is, is so um, significant and important, in, and yet um, the way we use the data to make decisions uh, based in science, obviously, because th that's one of the key things that uh, I believe the American public knows very little about. Uh, so here we are. We have 
all these inspectors and veterinarians that are in our workforce, and they're going about their daily duties every single day performing food safety tasks in all these establishments. Well, I would venture to say that not very many people are aware of the extent of that and that we're there and inspecting every single animal that's slaughtered for food um, because people tend to think that much of that is done in other ways. And so it is very labor-intensive, but to the credit of our employees, uh, I do believe they do a very effective job. But that shift has created some issues as well. As we all know, when you when you have these new IT systems, they're not as seamless as we would like for them to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have had some challenges with the data and, and, and getting all the data. We're almost to the point where we can now analyze that data that we're getting uh, and looking at it in ways to to improve even more how our employees use the data. Uh, and I think that that's going to be what I would say the next chapter for accumulating those mountains and mountains of data that we're that we're um, able to gather. So, Al, um, I'd like to know a little bit more about yourself. Uh, could you give us a sense of your career path, and um, how did you begin your career, and what brought you to your current leadership roles? I should say. That's an interesting question. Um, uh, my my dad was a, a food inspector, and so he said, "Why don't you?" take the test uh, for for civil service to be a, a food inspector. And this is uh, right after my junior year in college. And I was a little bit burnt out on on the books, uh, I would say. So, um, so I decided to try that. Uh, actually, a funny story. When back then, uh, what would happen uh, was you would take a civil service test. And you would get a card in the mail, whether you passed or you failed. And then uh, locations to which uh, you were being an off- offered a position for. So I get this card in the mail, and uh, my dad says, don't worry about it. I'll I'll fill it out for you. Well, about three days later, I get this uh, frantic call from this uh, woman that uh, I'll never forget her name. Her name was Blanche Zillman, um, worked in the Dallas regional office back then. And she said, uh, do you really want to go to Dalhart, Texas? And I said, I, I suppose, why? And she said, because we can't get anybody to go there. And so I asked my dad, I said, why Why? Why did you sign me up for going to Dalhart, Texas? And he said, well, if you can survive there for a year, you can survive anywhere. I, I worked there for about a year. That plant closed down. And really something fortunate happened when that plant closed down is that I didn't have a duty station. And so they sent me out on relief. So I got to work in multiple establishments. So I got to learn a lot. I got to meet a lot of inspectors, a lot of veterinarians. Uh, and so when when it came time to apply for promotion, that helped me. So I got to move back to San Antonio as a, as a GS8 uh, about three years uh, into my career. Uh, and very quickly, uh, probably a year later, I got to, to move to a GS9, which is basically uh, inspecting plants that are a little bit more complex here I was five years into my career, and I was already achieving what I thought would be my lifetime goals. Uh, and quite frankly, I had um, a very good friend and a supervisor, uh, Dr. George Martin. He, At one time, he'd been the veterinarian at the White House under uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, presidency. And he asked me, he said, uh, what are your career goals? And I said, well, I'm, I'm here. I'm in San Antonio. And he said, well, home is where you make it. You can do a lot more with your career than than just uh, being in San Antonio. And so he really prodded me into taking a management position in Austin, Texas. And so I did that for a year and then moved back to San Antonio as a GS-10. 
from there, there was a position that came open in, in Dallas, Texas as a labor relations specialist. And um, I had been involved in the union. I had held various offices in the union uh, as, a, as a field inspector. And then we restructured. So we went from five regional offices in 28 areas to 18 districts. So I applied for a deputy district manager position, which was um, at the time a GS-14. I had to go back, get some more regulatory experience, and then applied uh, when the district manager retired and the deputy district manager was promoted to uh, to the district manager. And so I, I was promoted to that position. And then he retired only after a year uh, after I'd been there, and so then I was promoted to district manager as a GS-15. So that's kind of how I got to to that level. And then um, I, I got a call from our undersecretary, uh, and he asked me, he or he basically said, we're looking for an administrator. And I said, that's great. When you find one, let me know, and I'll come help him. <laughs> he said, no, we want you to come do that. Here I am nine years later, except for, um, as I said, uh, Secretary Vilsack, he's been great to me. He's, he's, um, he's done a lot of things for me, and uh, he had the confidence in me to uh, place me in the deputy undersecretary position a little over two years ago. And so I currently am still the acting administrator and deputy undersecretary and for all purposes acting Undersecretary. Many hats. And and given your experience, Al, what core leadership lessons would you like to share with us? And, and, and more importantly, who has inspired your leadership approach? That's a, that's, that's a, that's a great question um, in that I believe that uh, having people around you that are, that are smart, uh, that are dedicated and, and, and have a vision for leadership – to me, those are just core qualities that that help. Uh, I, as I've said many, many, many times, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room because when you work in a team environment, and I am extremely fortunate, I have uh, medical doctors that work for me. I have microbiologists that work for me. I have all these experts around me that I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. But they fuel that energy and that passion that – to me, food safety is something that you either uh, have a passion for or you don't. Mm-hmm. And so it's fairly easy for someone to lead uh, a program area or a mission if they have that passion. And, and to me, uh, I believe that, that that just rings through in the entire organization of FSIS. What are the strategic priorities of the USDA's Food and Inspection Service? We will ask Alfred Almanza. Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at USDA when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.
Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Alfred Almanza, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Lisa Yarbrough. So, Al, I'd like to get some context around a system that uh, most seem to take for granted. And uh, most Americans purchase food for their family's dinner table with a high level of assurance that the food is safe. So could you take a moment and describe for us the current landscape of food safety and how the farm-to-table continuum factors into uh, the current state of food safety life cycle? So uh, as, I, as I said a little bit earlier about uh, food inspection and the inspection process, uh, we inspect every single animal that's slaughtered for food. So in these big beef slaughter plants that they, they slaughter over 300 head an hour, uh, we also have uh, some of the small mom-and-pop slaughter plants that slaughter one or two a day. Uh, doesn't matter. We're there. As long as they're slaughtering, we're there the, the whole time that they're, that they're slaughtering uh, those animals. So then you have um, poultry, um, the poultry inspection process where we're there every single day as long as they're slaughtering some some slaughter facilities slaughter a million birds a week and there we are uh basically carcass by carcass inspection is a foundation uh of of our mission uh, and so regardless of whether it's swine or or chickens or, or or beef we're there inspecting every single animal so then uh you move to the processing facilities where we're not necessarily there all day long, but we're there at least once every eight hours. So regardless of whether they they have one shift or two shifts, we have an inspector present in in the general vicinity that will come in, perform some food safety tasks, and make sure that the things that they're doing are assuring the American public that they're getting safe food. Uh, So regardless of whether it's making uh, sausage or beef jerky or any poultry products, we have an inspector that comes in basically verifies that what they're doing uh, within the, the HACCP um, arrangement that we have and that, we, that we're uh, assuring that those things are, are, are processed properly. In the, in the beef uh, or in the, in the slaughter plants, we also have veterinarians that are there to make sure that if any animal is suspect, they, they do uh, what we call the postmortem inspection of those of those carcasses to see if they're safe for food or not. So that's another aspect that I don't think people really recognize that we go to those lengths uh, to assure that. Perhaps you could elaborate on the key challenges and threats facing the U.S. food safety system today. What are some of the key foodborne pathogens and potential illnesses that FSIS seeks to eradicate and mitigate? Well, one of the things that we're really focused on right now is salmonella. Salmonella is is something that we uh, we just uh, did a new poultry uh, parts performance standard because we noticed that we were taking samples of, of whole birds and not finding uh, the levels of salmonella that were that were out in the or that CDC told us were necessarily prevalent. So then we started looking at what was happening. Well. How many people buy whole birds anymore? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so we said maybe we should start adjusting how we're looking for these for these bugs, right? So we started doing uh, 
poultry parts and setting standards for poultry parts and then also ground and common duty chicken. Uh, because we as a regulatory agency tend to stay focused on whole whole carcasses, whole pieces. And, and so it wasn't until we started trying to figure out what is it that's making people ill. And we work very closely with CDC uh, and FDA because – as, as you're well aware, sometimes we have recalls and we're kind of going back and forth uh, in, is this, is this uh, a, a regulated product by, by FDA or is it a regulated product by FSIS? And the reason is because as it's reported, some of these uh, illnesses are reported, um, a patient has to fill out a questionnaire and basically they have to tell everything that they've eaten. Well, most people don't eat all meat or all poultry. They wind up eating a salad or they wind up eating various types of foods. So CDC tracks those things. And then we we work with both or with all three. All three of us work together to try to figure out what that is that's making people sick. That's why sometimes uh, I know that uh, we, we get some criticism as to how long it takes to do uh, a recall. Uh, but it's not a simple process because we have to link a patient to the product um, to be able to make that determination. Uh, we're also focused on E. coli 015787. Obviously, that's something that's always on our radar screen. Campylobacter is another pathogen that we're focused on, uh, and we believe that we're going to make some headway with our new performance standards. So, Al, what um, would you outline your strategic vision for the food safety agency you lead, and, and what are some of your key priorities? Well, um, as I as I said earlier, uh, we're always looking at ways to keep the the public safe, and uh, in, in trying to be creative and innovative in the ways that we apply our regulatory authority. Um, I will say that uh, you know the new Saluriformes fish uh, is creating. Uh, uh, an issue for us in that it's something that we've never done. We've never inspected uh, catfish before. Uh, and so taking over a program from FDA that traditionally they've done all the, the seafood in the past and how we apply that type of inspection, uh, kind of interesting. There's about 18, 15 slaughter plants uh, that are basically in catfish farms. Uh, in so one of the things that's striking to me is how much it looks like the poultry industry, but then how different it is as well because, uh, you know, they have uh, these ponds where they grow these fish and they harvest them, bring them into a, uh, to a facility to process, and how quickly they go from a fish to a fillet is <laughs> astounding. Uh, and then some of the different things that we're not used to uh, like when they dump these live fish into uh, these uh, vessels, uh, there can also be f snakes in there, uh, which we're not necessarily used to having to dodge critters like that in other types of inspection that we that we've had to do traditionally. Uh, so catfish is uh, is something that we uh, it's a new kind of frontier for us, um, and so I I do believe that those are those are new challenges that that we, uh, we face uh, in, in the incoming years. So, you know, you mentioned earlier the first defense against food contamination events is prevention. And I think one of the widely used tools for avoiding food contamination, either in the production or processing, 
is the is the systematic risk assessment tool, and I think you referred to it. It's hazard analysis, critical control points. Could you tell us more about the system? And I understand you're in the process of laying the groundwork for fully enforcing the validation requirements. And what are some of the challenges to doing that? So, as as you said, HACCP uh, is 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 a system in which each establishment has to look at their process, and they identify hazards. Uh, based on the process that they have. In other words, when they're, when they're in the process of manufacturing whatever it is that, that they are manufacturing, there are certain hazards that they have to um, analyze. For example, uh, poultry. We all know that salmonella is on poultry. Anything with feathers has salmonella. And so they have to do an assessment and figure out where is it in their process that they can be more most effective in eliminating or reducing that pathogen. Okay, so that's kind of looking at a hazard, addressing it, and then when we, as a regulatory agency, come in, we have to verify that what they're doing is not only effective, but we may be taking samples to verify that what they're doing is effective in their process. But that covers, that's only poultry. We do the same thing with, uh, with beef. Uh, we take samples for 0157H7, uh, E. coli. Um, also, in other, in other types of uh, processes, we may not take samples, but we do verification activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we perform uh, verification activities, make sure that the food that they're, that they're processing or manufacturing is safe. A key theme for FSIS is modernization. I'd like to explore other changes made in how FSIS does inspections today. Would you tell us more about the adoption of a new methodology for conducting food safety assessments? How does the new FSA methodology allow FSIS to more efficiently use its resources by targeting higher-risk establishments? So when we uh, started doing food safety assessments, I would say close to um, 10 years ago. We, we really didn't have a, a good feel for um, how uh, extensive these HACCP plans were. Mm-hmm. And so basically we walk in, uh, we'd, we'd spend, uh, I would like to say, about 30 days in an establishment, which is, um, is a long time. But analyzing their HACCP plan, analyzing... Uh, down to a very granular level, exactly what goes on in in this establishment that gives us um, the information that we need to be able to determine whether they're effective in in the safety protocols that they have. So, we what we committed to was we would do these food safety assessments in every establishment across the uh, United States, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of sixty three hundred establishments, more or less. In, in the nation. And what happened was we were getting uh, basically the same information every three-year cycle. So I felt like what we need to do is, is be more focused and be more uh, efficient in performing these food safety assessments. So what happened was we condensed the, the food safety assessment and, and, and targeted specific areas in which we saw issues arising. So, for example, if, if we see across the poultry industry that we're having 
uh, a higher level of uh, salmonella type incidents in 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 poultry establishments that are preparing a specific product then we 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 don't just go to that establishment we go to all the establishments that produce similar products or all the poultry establishments and do these condensed food safety assessments that basically put us in the establishment for 5 days but we're very focused on that on that initiative and so it works extremely well it's working extremely well because not only are we making it to every plant every 3 years but we're going in there with a very uh, focused approach, which is kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about the data that we're getting. Because it's one thing to get data, but it's another thing to use data in an effective way to be able to, to A, uh, draw uh, very effective measures in moving forward and being effective, uh, because I believe that that's what our taxpayers want. Um, not only inspecting every single animal that's slaughtered, uh, being the expectation, but using data to be more proactive and, and, and be more effective and more efficient uh, because it is, uh, it is a value that I believe, uh, as, ta- as a taxpayer, I, I'd want to see any other government agency doing. So we have high expectations of ourselves, and that's what has driven us to that more, um, that more uh, what I would say, food safety assessment that is more targeted. As a follow-up, how have you modernized poultry slaughter inspection? Are there any other ways you are modernizing food safety by improving the way FSIS does inspections? So our new poultry inspection system um, came with its critics, uh, I'll say, um, because uh, anytime you try to change a system that has been in, in effect for about uh, 58 years, uh, you're gonna you're gonna have uh, you're gonna have critics. Uh, what I would say is, 58 years ago, when um, or 59 years ago now, uh, when we started uh, inspection of, of poultry, there was no consistency uh, back in the, in the size of birds. There was no uh, thinking of animal husbandry uh, of issues of of how they raised uh, chickens for for slaughter, and so when that inspection started there were significant differences between flocks, uh, between birds, basically, that came in. In fact, I was over in China a couple years ago, went to a plant there, and they're struggling with with building enough poultry facilities. And it kind of, though I wasn't around back then, it kind of threw me back to then because you could have a two-pound bird next to a seven-pound bird. And that's what they're struggling with over there. They're basically starting from where we were a long time ago. And so all that consistency in the in the new poultry inspection system, basically we're looking at how consistent and how effective the industry is in building the first bird looks like the last bird that's slaughtered on a daily basis. So what this new poultry inspection system did is it removed our inspectors from the line and basically looking at quality defects and putting them at the end of the line to be a carcass-by-carcass inspector. So what that has done is it places company sorters in front of the inspector so they remove any birds that don't meet the standard. So then the inspector at the end of the line basically has one job, and that is to be able to tell normal from abnormal. And quite frankly, uh, we've been using that pilot 
uh, for about 13 years before we we got to this final rule that gave us the new poultry inspection system. Uh, I think we're still in uh, in the beginning phases, but we're not seeing any difference in the number of uh, deficiencies that we're finding in the new poultry inspection system versus uh, the old uh, traditional types of inspection. Uh, so I, I wanted to learn more, Al. Could you tell us more about the new food safety pathogen reduction performance standards, which you alluded to? What effect have these standards have on reducing outbreaks? And more importantly, are you planning to expand or uh, adapt these standards beyond their current application? So, yeah, in February, uh, we finalized the new uh, pathogen reduction performance standards uh, for chicken parts in, in comminuted poultry. Um, our, you know, our risk assessments estimate that all our poultry performance standards could reduce salmonella and campylobacter illnesses that are contracted from these products uh, each year by about uh, 25% or about 50,000 illnesses, uh, which is significant. I, I believe if we do something that keeps one person from getting sick, that's pretty significant. But, you know, you look at 50,000 illnesses, that's pretty pretty significant. Uh, we also finalized the new pathogen reduction performance standards uh, for the chicken parts and the comminuted poultry that uh, that we believe, of, of both for chicken and, and turkey products, that we believe contribute to that. Also, um, we've uh, implemented uh, the major parts of our Salmonella Action Plan, uh, which is on target to meet the uh, Healthy People 2020 public health um, uh, goals that, that we've we've been shooting for. So, Al, the availability of data provides for more timely and efficient analysis of food safety inspection-related trends. Uh, to that end, would you tell us more about the use of the public health information system to meet your mission? Uh, what enhancements are being made to the system, and how does it drive your ability to take action to protect the public health? So, as I've, as I've said before, the, the availability of data provides for more timely uh, and efficient analysis of, of food safety inspection related trends. And that helps us protect public health. Uh, one of the things is we were building this system, we were looking for how we can cross-utilize this type of information. So as we start seeing upticks in, say, salmonella in one establishment, maybe uh, as, as we start gathering these data and analyzing, maybe we get to a, a point where we have a predictive analytics piece that perhaps will will tell us, huh, so not only look at that establishment, but if you have a supplier that's supplying multiple establishments in a geographic area, then don't only stop it testing that establishment, but what about the others that are being supplied by the same supplier? So in theory, if you have that capacity to be able to do that type of analytics, then you could. You could you could stop product in commerce before it ever gets out there and maybe not stop it permanently, but at least to do additional testing before it gets to the, to the consumer. How is FSIS ensuring the country's food is safe and uncontaminated? We will ask Alfred Almanza, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at USDA, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Alfred Almanza, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Lisa Yarbrough. You know, you mentioned earlier the, you know, the, the application of science to uh, meeting your mission around food safety. Would you tell us more about your efforts to modernize scientific approach to food safety? Specifically, how does the whole genome sequencing and expanded lab analysis factor into your efforts? Yeah, so this modernization includes, um, obviously, ongoing collaboration and communication with the public, um, including our partners in foreign governments, industry, stakeholder groups, state and local governments, and academia. Um, But we're committed uh, to modernization because we believe that that's what's necessary to to achieve our primary objective, which is uh, to prevent foodborne illness, right? By using this whole genome sequencing uh, technology, uh, it'll provide us with a much better understanding of what it means when we find pathogens in products that uh, that we test. It'll also greatly improve the accuracy of the conclusions uh, we reached based on our foodborne illness investigations, which is really quite significant if you start thinking about uh, genome sequencing or basically DNA footprinting of specific pathogens. And, you know, one of the things that... Uh, physicians typically do uh, is if somebody comes in sick, they take they take samples from, from these individuals. So when you start thinking about how we look at product to patient, it'll get us to a conclusion much quicker uh, and being able to draw a straighter line uh, between the two. Are you folks using advanced analytics in any of the efforts that you're pursuing? I I would I would love to say yes, <laughs> uh, but we're getting there. Uh, it, but it's one of those things where... Um, as we get more data, uh, and through our public health information system, I believe that that's where we're we're going, and I do believe that that's on the horizon. Sure. Uh, but I think we're getting there quicker rather than than later uh, through the development of our public health information and whole genome sequencing. Would you tell us more about the state meat and poultry inspection programs? What assistance do you offer state departments of agriculture, and how do you work with the states? Um, So we work with them uh, under an at least equal to cooperative agreement. They operate their own meat and poultry inspection programs if they meet and enforce um, requirements that are at least equal to that are imposed uh, under the Federal Meat Inspection Act uh, or the Poultry Products Inspection Act. Uh, Also, the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act of 1978. So state meat inspection or state inspected meat and poultry products are limited uh, to intrastate commerce only. Uh, there are currently only 27 states operating meat and poultry inspection programs, uh, but we uh, we conduct uh, annual uh, comprehensive reviews of the state uh, meat and poultry inspection programs uh, and their, uh, their requirements, so including enforcement of those requirements with respect to slaughter, uh, preparation, processing, storage, handling, and and the distribution of livestock, carcasses, and parts. So it's through these comprehensive reviews that we determine uh, whether each state uh, meat and poultry inspection program is at least equal to uh, the federal government uh, inspection program. Al, I'd like to turn your efforts coordinating inspection of foreign-produced products. Would you tell us more about FSIS's efforts to enhance the inspection of exports and imports? Perhaps you could give us an overview of how this system works and the key players. What are you doing to enhance FSIS's efficiencies in this area? 
So um, FSIS regulates all imported uh, meat, poultry, and processed egg products intended for use as uh, human food. Before FSIS-regulated products can enter this country, uh, the agency determines uh, whether the food safety regulatory system of any country that wishes to export to the United States is equivalent to the United States. But once we find a foreign country's uh, food safety system for meat, poultry, or processed eggs uh, equivalent, uh, then we inspect eligible products uh, from that country at our United States points of entry. So with respect to uh, international stakeholders, uh, we, uh, FSIS, we have an Office of International Coordination, or OIC, uh, within the Office of the Administrator that serves as the agency's point of contact to coordinate and address international issues. So the OIC, or the Office of Inter International um, Coordination, they represent FSIS in uh, contacts with foreign governments on all our regulatory matters, working in concert with other USDA and federal agencies uh, and with international responsibilities to ensure a safe uh, import and export of our regulated products. How has your portfolio been expanded over the last couple of years? Are there any new food products that you are mandated to regulate? What the process you employ to implement new regulatory regime and what are the challenges you face? So uh, as, as mandated by Congress, we're now responsible for the regulation of Siliformes fish uh, and fish products. While the Food and Drug Administration has traditionally had jurisdiction over fish, uh, the two most recent farm bills of 2008 and 2014 handed Siliformes inspection uh, over to us. Uh, the final rule was published in December of 2015 uh, with the implementation be uh, period beginning uh, in this last March. Uh, so we've established an 18-month transition period for full compliance with the, with the new regulations. And as I said earlier, it's something that we're new to. We never inspected any type of seafood or any type of fish. But one of the things that we're committed to is um, – to convey enough information so that on the first day of full implementation, it's September the 1st of 2017, uh, that there are no surprising disruptions of inspection, importation, or exportation of, of these processes. Mm -hmm. Well, I like to pick up on that that uh, push that you're doing to get people, the information push, and, and actually take it from the catfish to your whole uh, portfolio. Um, you conduct outreach and educational awareness to keep the public safe. I'd like to have you expand on what exactly are you doing in that area? And more importantly, how are you modernizing the way you communicate with the public about your efforts? So one of the things that we, uh, we've we done uh, is we, we conduct outreach and educational awareness efforts to small and very small plants because that's the largest population out there. Uh, people tend to believe that it's all large establishments, and but the vast majority are very small and very small plants. And we have uh, a specific outreach program for those small and very small plants. About 90% of the 6,389 uh, regulated establishments are considered to be small or very small operations. And we have a small plant help desk. I think last year we responded to some 2031 inquiries uh, in, in person over the phone or via email to help with, with that type of communication process. We're also focusing on modernizing our, our techniques with 
I don't know if you've, you've, you're familiar with the Food Keeper app. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the things that we worked with Cornell, and I think it's, it's great. Um, I told the secretary about it, and he downloaded it just to his phone. The Food Keeper app, I think, is a great uh, kind of new thing for, for people, general public, to be able to, to just have on their, their phone and be able to look up, huh, how long do I, can I keep meat, poultry, or processed eggs. Not only that, but it, it expands to other uh, products that we don't regulate, but it's a, it, it's a great tool uh, that I believe is, is helpful in, in today's world. Uh, but we, we're always looking for new ways um, to, to help uh, the public. We have a hotline uh, that we field calls in English and Spanish uh, and, and also have an online chat uh, and virtual uh, Q&A system as well in our hotline. Food allergens are a public health issue impacting millions of Americans. Uh, would you tell us more about your efforts to ensure that product labels declare all ingredients as required by law and that products do not contain undeclared allergens? So allergen recalls have, uh, have been on the rise, and, and this can be due to an increased sampling uh, plan that we have uh, because that's one of the things that we tend to pay attention to. If things start looking like they're out of whack, then we start regulating in a different, a little bit different format. So what we did was uh, we issued a notice, typical of federal government. We issue a notice when we see something going a little bit astray. And so this was control of, of agency-tested products for adulterants. So the analysis of, of previous issuances and recalls connected to undeclared allergens and ingredients of public health concern revealed uh, that many occurred because of changes uh, in ingredient suppliers, products in the wrong package, or misprinted labels, and even uh, changes to product or ingredient formula- uh, formulation. So further analysis also pointed to instances where meat and poultry products were coming into contact with allergenic ingredients that were not directly added to the product, uh, which is something that basically folks should be paying attention to, especially with uh, the number of folks that have allergies to certain types of food products. So uh, we chose to take uh, action to further protect public health uh, by recalling products uh, as well when regardless of the level of these allergens that were present, we, we do recalls. And so that's why you've seen a significant uptick in these, uh, in these recalls. So uh, you've mentioned a couple of times, just given your travel uh, log, the growing complexity of the global food chain has increased not, not only the potential incidence of contamination events, but ultimately the cost of, say, one. And I want to give, I want to put underscore this. Could you give us a sense of the impact an incident of contamination could incur in terms of cost? And how does it, uh, how does this reality underscore the importance of the work that you do? One of the things that we, uh, we focus on is maintaining um, a level of inspection that is consistent. So regardless of where the product comes from, uh, regardless of whether it's imported or domestically uh, manufactured, we, we encourage um, establishments to, uh, to pay real close attention through uh, their annual uh, reassessment of their plan, which is required. So if you think about uh, you draw up a, a plan and if you just uh, you have a plan, you put it in your desk drawer and basically refer to it only when you need to, uh, 
that plan is really really not going to be very effective. So what we do is uh, we we have uh, annual reassessments that we require of these HESA plans. And so when when that is done, uh, we believe that it gives the establishment an opportunity to revisit hazards uh, that may have occurred or just, for example, as we were talking about allergens, this tends to be something that the rest of the industry is experiencing. So should we look at, huh, maybe there's some vulnerabilities within our system that we need to do an assessment of and perhaps include in our HASA plan this year or or maybe something that is no longer a hazard, remove that mm-hmm. from our from our system, which we don't see very much removing anymore. It's more adding because as the world gets more complex and quite frankly, food gets more complex, there tends to be more rather than less that these food uh, producing establishments uh, are focused on. How does collaboration and partnerships enhance our food security? We will ask Alfred Almanza, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at USDA, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Alfred Almanza, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Lisa Yarbrough. Be interested to understand as a number of uh, agencies uh, that have food safety as part of their mission, if not, and I just think of the Food and Drug Administration, the Centers for Disease Control. So how does collaboration and partnership make our food system safer? Well, to say that we work closely would be an understatement, uh, and we have to, uh, because as I, the example I was using earlier, there is no easy way to do traceback on illnesses that occur uh, without our partners, uh, because like I said, most folks don't eat all vegetables or all meat. They eat combinations of different types of foods, fruits, vegetables, and things of that nature, and so Having that relationship is critical for us, uh, working, like I said, with FDA, uh, with uh, CDC. It may, makes FSIS more effective. Uh, it makes them much more effective. It improves our responses, particularly during uh, recalls and outbreaks. Um, in 2011, we created the Interagency Food Safety Analytics Collaboration, or IFSAC, uh, which brings together 
senior leaders and technical experts on foodborne illness uh, source attribution uh, from those agencies. And uh, in 2015, one of uh, IFSAC's major successes was developing uh, harmonized attribution uh, estimates for Salmonella, E. coli, O157H7, Listeria, Monocytogenes, and Campylobacter for major food categories and hosting a public meeting uh, with over 300 participants to, to share those findings. Al, what is being done to find new ways for government and industry to work together to stop foodborne illness and to make our nation's food the safest it can be? Well, as mentioned, uh, FSIS coordinates closely with uh, other federal public health agencies such as the FDA and uh, CDC. And uh, this collaboration makes FSIS uh, much more effective and improves our responses, particularly uh, during recalls and outbreaks. So, Al, you can't do any of this without your inspectors, without your people. So what are you doing to make sure you have a well-trained, technically capable workforce to meet the demands of today and uh, seize the opportunities of tomorrow? Well, one of the things that we do is we devote substantial resources to ensuring that we adopt the best practices in all our key areas. Um, we have requirements for each employee to work with management to prepare a yearly individual development plan Uh, But as I was also talking about earlier, we have this new initiative called iImpact. And basically what that is, is it's an initiative to get all the way from our GS5s that work on the slaughter line, GS7s, all the way to the top levels in, in management and demonstrate how important their job is. And the reason I say that is because and I say this all the time and when I go speak to my employees and to large groups. When we go to work every day, who thinks about the impact that they're having on the public? And, and I would say that very few people do because I ask them to raise their hand. And I said, because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, when I get to work, I'm going to have to deal with staffing issues. Or when I get to work, my boss is going to want me to work another extra hour. Or he's going to have – and I said, this is how you should go to work, thinking – that today I'm going to impact somebody's life. Because regardless of where you are in FSIS, if you're working as a GS5 out on the slaughter line or a GS7 or sitting behind a desk in a district office or in headquarters in one of our labs, you're having an impact on public health. And if we don't all work together, this agency doesn't succeed. And so one of the things that I tell them, Secretary Vilsack has told me this on a number of times, When I go to bed at night, I don't worry about FSIS, and that's a good thing uh, because I believe that he has a confidence in our employees to do the things that they do to keep the products that we regulate safe that I don't want to be on the secretary's call list or I don't want him thinking about me when he goes to bed, right? So that's what I believe that the value of our employees is, I I would say, something that you just couldn't put a price tag on. That's wonderful. So what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career career? in public service? Well, you're not going to get rich. Uh, I'll, I'll say that. Uh, and, and as I said earlier, in public service, it's one of those things that you have to have a passion uh, for that. And I would say that most people that go into um, public service is, it's a selfless career, I would say. I would also say that you, as a, as a public servant, you never lose sight of the important contributions uh, that you're you're going to make, and and it's it's difficult to be able to measure them, uh, because 
regardless of where you are, and I'll, and I'll say this for, for food safety, we don't get credit for the people that don't get sick, you, but you can't measure that. Can't measure that. But, I mean, public service uh, around the world, I mean, especially I would say here in the United States, I mean, I think about uh, folks in the military. I think about folks uh, in, in law enforcement and all the things that they don't, they don't get credit for people that, that they don't, they don't have to call them because of their efforts. And so, uh, I do believe that it's a special calling. I do believe that it's something that, uh, it's in your blood. Uh, and we have many, many people that devote their entire life, uh, to public service. And, and it's just, I believe one of the, one of the most, uh, thankless jobs you can you can have, but for me it's it's not about getting the thank yous. It's about understanding that you're making a difference uh, in in the world. And I, I say that because the products that we regulate they don't stay in the United States anymore. They they go around the world. And as I go around the world, I see how other countries yearn for the products that are produced here in the United States. Uh, whether other people admit it or not, hey, the United States is still looked to for the best of the best. And I, that's what I believe public service is about. Right. Well, Al, thanks for coming in today. It's, uh, I appreciate your time today. But more importantly, Lisa and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, thank you. Uh, and, and certainly, uh, this is interesting. Uh, for me, I, I don't really do a whole lot of these uh, radio-type uh, interviews. But uh, I, I appreciate your time and, and certainly uh, the opportunity to do this. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Alfred Almanza, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at USDA. My co-host from IBM has been Lisa Yarborough. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.